tales of Northern Michigan's past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and joining us again today is Mary Jane Doerr, author of Bayview, An American Idea. Mary, you are a wealth of knowledge, and um, I think we're probably going to get at least one more episode out of all of your anecdotes and history about Bayview. When we left off last time, we were talking a little bit about the hotels that were located. I mean, we had massive amounts of people coming to Bayview each Sunday or probably even throughout the whole course of the summer. How many hotels were there originally in, in Bayview? I think you five. mentioned five. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what happened to those? Okay. Um, there were five large hotels. Uh, two of them are still in existence. The biggest one was built by Caskey, and he um, built the Grand Hotel, of course. And that was the Bayview House. And under strange circumstances in 1929, it burned. And they never quite, they suspected arson, but they never were able to prove it. And that was insured at 50000 but it was worth 150000 So it was never rebuilt. And that was where all the great visitors to the assembly stayed. Jadam Hall owned part of it. And if he couldn't house them at his house personally, they stayed at the Bayview House. And right now we still have the Bayview Inn. Bayview Inn. And that's grown immensely since those early days. And the Terrace Inn, which is very successful. We had another hotel was called the Southern, and that's now become a house and two lots, which become new cottages where your artist has her pictures mm-hmm. yep. uh, at, the Ar- at the Arlington Jeweler. She has her house. And then there was um, a, a big bed and breakfast that was right on the waterfront. There is a vacancy. You can see where the hole is. And that burned. It was wonderful that we had all these hotels because we had to service. The last one that was um, made into, um, it became the house for the students now. It's called Christ Hall. But that was called the Hilton. Interestingly, I met the man whose family built that. And he, he said they, during the Depression, his family made enough money in the summer at the Hilton to sustain them through the whole winter. Good for and, them. <laughs> yes. And he also, he went to the University of Michigan in um, statistics and mathematics. Now, these, these hotels could barely even contain. We had all kinds of overflow. And, for instance, the Florence Cottage, I had a tour of their their home, 17 rooms, three kitchens, four levels. Mm-hmm. So you had these these um, rooming houses also. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, Hemingway was given a room at Evelyn Hall. Those, all of the major halls had um, places for people to stay on the upper floors. So we had Loud Hall with um, accommodations. Uh, Evelyn and Hitchcock and Epworth. Epworth is now used to house the faculty, and Harrison House is used to house more faculty. Then at Hitchcock, they use the small rooms upstairs to uh, for practice rooms. And that's what's always uh, um, been a, a subject of interest to me is when you're going through all these beautiful halls. You know, what was their original intention? What were they originally used for? Uh, various things. Um, there was a huge uh, Egyptian collection from Egypt that was bought by Jadam Hall, and that was on display there. At Evelyn Hall was given to the women, and they uh, used it for their meetings, and upstairs the rooms were rented. And then um, Loud Hall was used for uh, education classes, 
a music hall was used to run the music program, but uh, four of the halls had accommodations upstairs. Mm-hmm. So that's how they housed the hard, the number of people. The sheer number was exorbitant. The um, there were, People don't realize that there were two sets of railroad tracks. And because of the erosion, it's very difficult to realize that now. We had a an electrical station, and it was a pump, and it generated so much electricity, we were able to light the grounds poorly, but in the <laughs> 1890s. And in 1922, they put in this well. They dug down and got the well and brought up water for the community. And if you look in the 1925 history, you'll see the board trustees are standing around the well. That well now is about 300 yards out in the water. That's so that's so much that the, mm, the, um, the right. shoreline has shifted. Like we just yep. now on a on an average Sunday, how large were the were the early gatherings? I've I've heard some crazy numbers. Five ten thousand. Yeah, yeah, five to ten thousand people. No loudspeakers. No, you know, no public bathrooms. <laughs> well, we had a we had an area which was the latrine, but um, no, it was sizable, and they couldn't. The gates were locked on both sides. And so you couldn't bring your horses or your carriages in. You had to walk in. And so the horses were kept off the grounds. I know in, in, uh, in the 1880s, we have receipts from the train station. 8,000 tickets were sold between Petoskey and Bayview on one Sunday. Uh-huh. And that didn't include the, well, if it did, if the boats landed in Bayview if the water was high enough for the draft. If not, they went to Harbor or they came to Petoskey and they'd get the train and come over. But there was all the boat traffic, the rail traffic on two sets of railroads uh, lines. At first, the railroad uh, had to, the big cars, the Pullmans had to stay in Petoskey because the rails from Petoskey to Bayview were not strong enough to withstand them. So they would get onto the called the dummy, and they got on that came to Bayview. There's a picture in my book of 1886 where they were all jumbled into this box car and <laughs> coming to Bayview. It didn't look real exciting. I've got a picture of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Bayview has always, like we mentioned, been open to diversity, um, and they were extremely accepting of the African Americans at that time. Mm-hmm. The Fist Jubilee Singers were very, very popular, and they were here in Bayview maybe three times in the 1890s. Now, the first question is where they stay, and they're listed in the newspaper by name as staying at the Bayview House. And and then in the turn of the century, we had three or four more of the Jubilee singing groups. And the Williams Jubilee singing groups opened the John M. Hall Auditorium that we have now, the present one, in 1914. And then the Fish Jubilee singers were back again in 1918. Um, then there were numerous black people there appeared as speakers. One of the most interesting one was County Cullen. He was a, a great American poet, and he taught in the New York School District. He was there several times in the 30s, and he stayed with Homer Larson. And uh, Homer Larson was a longtime member of the association. His father taught in the black schools in Alabama. And because of that, in the anti, um, anti-black uh, feeling, he was um, he was attacked by a mob. He was thrown over um, 
a uh, wall, and he experienced problems for the rest of his life. Was that here or was that back home? It was at that time. His father was in Memphis, and then he went to Tuscaloosa, and Homer uh, taught in the black schools, too. And um, then he went to... Um, uh, he he arranged for uh, Winston Churchill when he came to America to speak, and he he coined the word the Iron Curtain, and so that was Homer Larson that arranged for that. Here's more of those connections. Now yes. we're now we're Another international. Of and he was interested in the theater arts, so a long time uh, volunteer for the theater arts department. Booker T. Washington. Okay, Booker T. Washington was here in 1893. Now, before World War One, the blacks stayed in, in hotels in Vitasky. But by 1913, it was kind of a shift, I don't, uh, for various reasons in the country. And so John M. Hall housed him at his personal cottage. And a few years ago, Booker T. Well, also, I wanted to say that in 1893, his address was published in the Bayview magazine. But in 19. Uh, 13, he came back and he stayed with Hall. Uh, a few years ago, we had a, a guest, uh, Ken Morris. And Ken Morris had been a member of the Young Americans in Harbor Springs. He met his wife there. He passed by Bayview many, many times. And I, um, he didn't know that his great-great-grandfather, Booker T. Washington, stayed at that house. And the people owned own it now took him through, and he absolutely it was very he was very moved. Of course. And when they got to this huge dining room table, the owner said, "Well, it's, he had to have eaten there because the only one that's ever been here." <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is now, right now in Bayview, we have a speaker that is talking about uh, Frederick Douglass and Frederick Douglass's great 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 grandson is Kenan Morris, who's also related to Booker T. Wow, what a connection. So it's, it's just amazing, the connections. Now, Mary, I know this one touches home base with you, and uh, we're going to go on to Hugo Gottesman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Hugo and his time. I, well, I was fortunate to grow up listening to Hugo. Um, he was a violinist, a very great violinist, who was a casualty of the Nazis. And um, he played, he was in Bayview from eight, 1942 till his death in 1970. He, um, I didn't know anything about him because when we were growing up, uh, Austria and Vienna were off limits. You didn't discuss it. He would not talk about anything about the war. So uh, I decided to... Uh, few years ago, I was going to find out something about Hugo, and I did, um, and I it led me on a, a wonderful, wonderful experience of, of information and treasure. But I was in Santa Fe, and I was at a music conference, and the this man came up and sat down next to me, and he said, where are you from? I thought, oh dear, oh dear, I'm from Petoskey. You know, all these people from all over the country with major newspapers, and he said, oh, you're the one from Bayview. I said, did you know of it? And he said, yes, I met my wife there. And then he told me about Hugo, things I had no idea. And one of the things he told me was that 
this country of Austria, put out an international news release when Hugo died in 1970. And he said, because of the sheer greatness and the number of musicians in that city, the, the country does not put out news releases on musicians. And he said, I'll send it to you. And he did. It was in German, and I struggled and got it translated. And that news release has opened up us so much in Austria. And it's been the source of we were able, I was able to get a Wikipedia article um, put online. And now, the just this spring, the Vienna Symphony has put his name down as conductor and and the original longtime concertmaster. And this is all because of your perseverance, though, to yeah. get Wikipedia and the country mm-hmm. of Austria to embrace the true story of Hugo Gossel. Right. The uh, Nazis expunged the archives of all the major institutions. And uh, through that um, news release, I was able to send it to the, con- the archives for the country of Austria. They did not have it because after... 1970, somebody took it and uh, put it in the basement uh, under the unindexed uh, information, and they, it was lost. So I sent it to them, and now they have, have it down, and people are looking for Hugo will find it. It was published by Austria, so the information is accurate. And also, the uh, I got a wonderful letter from the... Uh, War archives. Hugo was a soldier in World War One, and he won the equivalent award that Georg von Trapp was given, mm-hmm. and uh, he also won three awards for bravery in battle. And the letter from the war archives said that this was a very brave man. He was also very brilliant. He understood math, and he said the job he did had took a very brilliant man because he had to understand the mathematics behind it all. So Hugo, I, I, I imagine he's, he's, he's Jewish, of Jewish yes, descent. Yes, he was Jewish. And um, in 1933, when Hitler was elected to take over Germany, Hugo was the first one fired. And he lost his job at the radio station in Vienna. Uh, he was concertmaster and conductor at the Vienna Symphony. And then he was also a teacher, professor at uh, the Academy of Music. And he, um, he had no work in Vienna. He, one day he was fully employed, the next day nothing. So he did the only thing he knew what to do. He went to Gutenberg, I hope I pronounced that right, in Sweden. And Bishop Wade, Bishop Raymond J. Wade, was a member of the Bayview Association, became president. And Wade secured visas for Hugo and his wife in 1936. And that was the time when there was a restriction of, of our, in, into the United States. It was must have been very difficult. And Hugo came to the United States, and he, um, but Leah had to go back to Vienna and take care of some official business. And she came a year later and uh so uh, Hugo had to restart his whole career. And this was a man that in 1933 was the conductor of the state opera, the chorus, the soloist, the Vienna Symphony, 
at the concert hall, which was enormous, and he was the conductor for the Beethoven's Nice Symphony. And simply canceled because of the Nazis. And all of that was eradicated, but they couldn't take it out of the newspapers. And in German, there's 1,900, 2,000 references to Hugo Gottesman. And then he winds up here in northern Michigan at Bayview. And he, the the one thing I want to say about the people here in northern Michigan, Hugo got cancer in 1952, and uh, he had, it was serious. And so people of northern Michigan, uh, led by a couple from Wipotansin, Chris, Robert, Christ, Robert and Ruth Christ, they uh, set, sent him to mail. And one of the doctor, uh, there were two doctor males, I think, and he one do- uh, operated on him. The cancer was eradicated or removed, and he returned. But it was also flown on a private plane by Bertram Rowe from Batoski. And people know the Rowe family because Marie worked for the public schools in Petoskey. And, and that brings me back to, you know, again, Bayview has always been a progressive community that respects the perspective uh, and uh, of other religions. And, um, you know, they, they embraced Hugo. Mm-hmm. And then also what I find interesting is we've talked about this a couple of times, uh, the local synagogue here oh, in yes. Petoskey. They celebrated a recent milestone. And, and who showed up to support that that celebration? Well, I had a wonderful relationship with the woman who was president of the of the temple, and she invited me. Well, I thought this was a very significant event, 120 years. That's very important in Jew, Jewish history and Jewish uh, understanding. Uh, so I mentioned it to the director of religious activities, and he says, "Now nah, I think I should go to that. And um, he spread some word. We had eight of us. And we went to this wonderful, wonderful service on Friday night. And I was so in, intrigued with the um, temple because their uh, rabbi was one of the first rabbi, women rabbis in Israel. And she's Israeli, but she came and she, she was really f- uh, fascinating. And so I was really proud to do it. Another thing that was really important is that Wendy Bice was the state historian for the Jewish people and the Jewish history. And she mentioned the architect for the first synagogue in Detroit was W.E.N. Hunter. And that was in 1913. After he got done with that synagogue, he built designed the Jadam Hall Auditorium. Amazing. And they didn't know that. So, yeah, there is a lot of correlation with different things. I was so happy. Um, the religious committee in Bayview sent the most beautiful bouquet of flowers from the association to honor the the people. And I was very proud of that. And isn't that the way it should be? Acceptance yes. of each other's uh, yes. you know, beliefs? Yes, we should. Because it's faith. It's his faith we're talking about. Mm -hmm. It is faith and respect for what the meaning of 120 years is in the Jewish faith. As we just talked about in the last few minutes, um, we we have the Methodists coming together with the Jewish uh, faith, and then we also have female uh, rabbis, which brings us to my next chapter here, uh, the women's movement. 
uh, having such a history of progressiveness that, that Bayview is famous for, how about periods over the years concerning women's rights? This is a little-known fact in Bayview, but the first woman speaker in Bayview was in 1876 at the first camp meeting. And then uh, if you read the story about the, um, the women suffragists, uh, they could come to the camp meetings and speak because it was appropriate, and they could speak in church because that was acceptable. But um, one of the most interesting persons, Anna Howard Shaw, was Ray, well, grew up in Big Rapids, and she was in Bayview three times. And she made the speech before Congress, and that led to the uh, passage of women's suffrage. And um, she's a very interesting character. She had a Boston marriage, which... Uh, you know, didn't seem to bother anybody when that she came. And then there was Jenny June Crowley was the first editor in America, had her first had the column in New York of major newspapers. Um, Frances Willard was the most famous woman woman of her day. She uh, was here, and then um, they built Evelyn Hall, but then she went to England and and stayed. Uh, I have a list in my book of some of the great women who were there, and there was something like 200. Uh, Frances Willard and Mary Livermore. Mary Livermore was um, the only woman journalist in the wigwam when Lincoln was nominated for president. She also um, had a group of uh, women who went to the lines during the Civil War, and they would retrieve wounded soldiers, and they would take them back to their family. And um, she was in review several times, and she had a book out about the Civil War, and she talked about that. I wish those walls could talk. If at only. Think that we have you. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I, I admired. Um, Jane Addams was also in Bayview several times, and her crowds were so big, they had to move it from Evelyn Hall to the big auditorium because she just drew such a crowd. So it's people like that, women like that. Also, in 1893, one of the great leaders of the women's movement uh, was in Bayview at Evelyn Hall, and they founded the Michigan Federation of Women's Clubs. And they advertised it through the Bayview magazine. And all these women came, and they formed this uh, organization, which continues today, and has led a great many movements to uh, improve our society. Well, Mary, uh, thank you for joining us today for this episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm going to invite you back for yet another episode if you're willing to join us. Um, yes, I love it. I, I really appreciate your interest, and thank you for inviting me. Well, of course. So um, join us for the next episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past as we continue our discussion with Mary Jane Dore, Bayview historian and author of Bayview, an American Idea, a gorgeous book about the history of uh, Bayview, Michigan. And we'll also be talking in our next episode about other famous visitors to Bayview. And then maybe we'll touch on your next book also, yes. Mary. Yes.